Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Trash Future featuring myself, Riley, Milo, Hello. N- Nate on the boards, Hello, Alice calling in from sunny Glasgow. Hello, Riley, you didn't do the sexy voice you always do when there's a bonus episode. Um, and we are also joined by the official Trash Future <laughs> Bad Books by Tory MPs correspondent Nish Kumar. What a specific, specific brief. I'm yeah. honoured to have finally got a real job. I <laughs> want to tell my parents about this. Yeah. You'll never believe it. I've got a real job and it's listening to the worst writing imaginable. <laughs> yeah. So... We, I uh, said this to you before we started recording. Whatever information it is you people are trying to torture out of me, I will give it to you. Just <laughs> It's a bit like when you're watching a BBC news report and they're like, now over to our Bulgaria correspondent. <laughs> and you can see how genuinely shocked they are to be on TV. Like there's this person that, like in the very depths of the BBC machine who's like never been used in a report since 1982. And they're like frantically straightening their tie. Oh, yes, Bulgaria. I've not spoken English in 23 years. Um, so... Having having gone through the sort of various psychoses and mental cul-de-sacs of our Prime Minister Boris Johnson, we figured it was time to go through the various psychoses and mental cul-de-sacs of the uh, old-fashioned ghost that haunts our Prime Minister, yeah. Jacob Rees-Mogg. Mm. Another who, extremely normal man. One of the normalist. Mm. The living incarnation of the worst aspects of this entire country. Mm. Like, it's like somebody brought to life the worst of our national subconscious. Yeah. And what, what always strikes me, and this is something we'll get into as we go, is that lots of people like to say, oh, he's not even a real toff. And it's like, he's Do new they? money. Yeah. He's, he's new, is he new money? Yeah, yeah. yeah he's mm. a hedge fund. He's a hedge fund guy. Do you guys know that he was interviewed by Ali G in uh, the late 90s? Yeah, the I've 11 o'clock that. show. Yeah, he was like the like poshness expert for uh, he was like you know when when Ali G used to do segments on the eleven o'clock show. One of the segments uh, he used to interview people and say that mm. he was from a fake youth, youth TV show. And one of the people they got was Jacob Rees Mogg because he was like seen as like an expert on cartoon poshness in Britain. Yeah. He's an expert on it because he's very studied at it. And there are lots of liberals who like to own him on the basis of, ah, you just play an aristocrat. You're not really one. Uh, You're just a a much more modern, important, and effective type of aristocrat. A hedge fund guy. How many boys have you even molested? Come on. It's like, have you ever seen the talented Mr. Ripley? Like, it's trying to Mm. own fucking Matt Damon with, oh, you're too successful. Yeah, exactly. And this Mm. is what we're going to be exploring as we go through his his book on the Victorians. Uh, the, yeah, the talented Mr. Rees Mogg. <laughs> and uh, this book, I, I believe uh, it has been read under a thousand times. <laughs> oh, no, that's under a thousand sales. It's been read far less times yeah, than far that. Less, far less times than that. So yeah. I am now, I believe, one of a very elite confraternity <laughs> Of people who have mm. read Jacob Rees-Mogg's book, and it's I'm- like those things, those scholars who've like who've memorized the entire Quran. You're like part <laughs> yeah, of a you, smaller, much dumber subset. I'll say half Israeli. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. and, and I have I have read all of Jacob Rees-Mogg's book, and now I'm taking it out on Nish Kumar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just, God, just, just George C. Scott's pattern with Rommel. You read his mm. goddamn book. 
<laughs> so mm. uh, we're going to jump right in. Uh, the blurb from the publisher is, is, is as follows. They built a nation. <laughs> oh, Starting very strong. A great start. <laughs> there was no nation, nation before We've that. killed nation the first <laughs> yeah. five minutes. It's, all, no. it's, it's already a bad start. <laughs> they built mm. a nation. Here's a bit. It's about to get worse. Now it's our turn. <laughs> what? Oh. Wait. Here's what I made earlier. The Victorians uh, built this community center and the mean developers want to repossess it. But if we can just put on a show. Roger Scruton. Um, <laughs> is the twist what? end that we recolonize India? Uh, I oh, mean, damn. I don't know what the twist ending is. I think the twist <laughs> will, will come to what that is. The prize in the colonizing India competition is exactly the same as the cost of stopping them demolishing the new rec center. <laughs> so many associate the Victorian era with austere social attitudes and filthy factories. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, Fair. Yep. Mm. Sounds about Not the right. Sort of filth I associate with Victorians, but carry on. <laughs> yeah. But in this bold and provocative book, I mean, mm. that's true. It is yep. bold and provocative, in the sense that it's a 600-page history book with like 50 sources, all of which are just sort of paraphrased into 12 biographies. It's free form. He's doing yes. freestyle history. Jazz history. Yeah. I miss the days when provoke didn't mean I'm going to be a cunt for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, because legitimately, it's it's a guy whose qualifications as a historian are I'm the monocle wearing version of the guy who posts on YouTube videos like I was born in the wrong era. This is when music was real. I <laughs> yeah, he's far older than I am. After he died, it, that's the thing. <laughs> they, this is exactly right. This is. This is like getting the 13-year-old kid who's like, I listen to Led Zeppelin, all my classmates like swag shit. This is like getting that kid to write a history of classic rock based on what he thinks it would have been like. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, fair. Also, I don't know if you've ever seen Jacob Rees-Mogg as a 13-year-old, yes. but he was yes. famously photographed for the BBC wearing a monocle yeah. and like a double-breasted suit coat oh, at age 13. So it was grim. Jacob Rees-Mogg, the titular Mogg. Leading hmm. Tory MP and prominent Brexit advocate takes up the story of 12 landmark figures to paint a very different picture of the age, one of bright ambition, bold self-belief, and determined industriousness. How so, do you, you know, paint a whole picture with just using white? <laughs> <laughs> also, like, as though that somehow is... Uh, uh, that is... My bad. Sorry. Sorry. I wanted to bring this up to show Jacob Rees-Mogg because yes. this was also... Oh, uh, yes, I can see In 1981. Yeah. Like, he's not even that old! <laughs> yeah. So... So, uh, to paint a very different picture of the age, one of bright ambition, bold self-belief, and determined industriousness, which, as we all know, is the opposite of social of austere social attitudes and filthy mm. factories. Yeah. It's not like yeah. these things can coexist <laughs> or enable one another or anything. Nope. It's one or the other. And it's, also, it's like it's not as though that's not a picture of the Victorians, which you're completely fed in school. Of yeah. like just men in stovepipe hats who wanted to change the British economy with this one weird trick. Slavery. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They were all, yeah, that is all we were ever taught. They build bridges and mm. nothing else. Don't Google them. <laughs> yeah, don't do, do that. Do not Google them. Uh, whether through Peel's commitment to building free trade, Palmerston's deft diplomacy in international affairs, or Pugin's uplifting ar architectural feats, the Victorians transformed the nation and established Britain as a preeminent global force. There's a weird kind of alliteration or assonance in all of those sentences that's annoying the hell out of me. <laughs> like diplomacy, just, mm. yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, it's just, it sounds like death to diplomacy, and I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, I can get behind that, but <laughs> yeah, so yeah. No, it wasn't also, that. Also, diplomacy was so fucking easy in the 19th century because it was just a bunch of people meeting up to discuss how the various pores were doing and how yes. best to kill them. Yes. <laughs> yes. You, you just like drove a boat onto somebody's lawn, like informed them that their land was now your land and took a piss in a plant. <laughs> yeah, also, mm. far be it from me to speak for the colonies, but 
to what extent is diplomacy we will own you through a string of complicated trade agreements? Like, that doesn't strike me as being particularly diplomatic. Mm. Uh, well, no, they did it because they did it in a smoky back room, yeah. uh, as opposed <laughs> yeah. to uh, in, in all of these austere European chambers. Anyway, so we don't want to go through every ludicrous piece of historical revisionism in this book because it's basically all historical <laughs> revisionism. It's all just Jacob Rees-Mogg saying, oh man, why are you being so mean to all these generals and prime ministers? Why won't someone think of the generals and prime ministers? Mm. Every chapter is a book report, but the only discussion is the vibes of that book that he read. <laughs> yes. 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 Uh, again, I've read this book, and yes, mm. among his, so among his heroes, he counts his general Charles Napier, who like committed like an incre like a massive like colonial massacre uh, in India, and you know, this is monocle into soup shit for the liberal commentary in a cool way. Yeah, yeah. What I mean is, this is monocle into soup shit for the liberal commentariat because he'll like get some stuff wrong, but none of us are surprised by, by this kind of shit from Jacob Rees-Mogg. And to be honest, it would be weirder to us if he didn't bow down in worship to erase the crimes of Brit Britain's greatest bloodletters. Yeah. So our approach, our approach to understanding this book is, as ever, complicated. It seems as though Rees-Mogg had several motivations for writing this piece. Firstly, as a piece of extremely revisionist history um, to support his view of what Britain should be now and in the future. Secondly, mm. as a piece of myth-making about himself as a kind of Oxonian polymath and traditional gentleman. And third, to carry out an incredibly weird and specific grudge against early 20th century Bloomsbury Group author Lytton Strachey for writing a book called Eminent Victorians, <laughs> remembered as a brilliant and sardonic bit of history, but also sensitive and honest. And for Rhys Mogg, it was insufficiently fawning, and so he's constantly mm. referenced. He's just and written one of this book to just, like, fuck this one guy in particular. Imagine having mm. a beef... The, with someone who died a hundred years ago, <laughs> <laughs> but that's but to Jacob Rees-Mogg, that's now. <laughs> like, that's, like he wishes it was a hundred years ago, well, and he tries to live in that headspace. And, and that's what we're going to get to. Actually, is yeah. the real reason he wrote it. We, as ever, think is fundamentally personal because Jacob Rees-Mogg was raised by Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad. I think William and William Rees-Mogg is editor of the Times. I'm just going. I'm just going to look that up. Uh, he, he was William Rees Morgan. He was editor yeah. of the yeah, Times. Yeah, can confirm. He was. Yeah, he was editor of the Times, and he was also like an ideological anarcho-capitalist, which again should surprise no one. But he would write books like called Blood in the Streets and stuff about yeah. how you have we how investment has to go to crush worker power to to make it uh, all of society must be winner take all uh, these kinds of things like Rothbard shit child yeah. markets yeah a mm, manual yeah. and how to be a sociopath Which, you know these guys knew something about so it's you know all to the good and so what we get then is i think that one of the reasons that jacob reese mogg is so obsessed with this era is that he is a fundamentally empty person and Hit this drive to sort of restore nationalism, to restore this drive to nostalgia is for him to connect with something outside of himself that isn't being bought or sold. Hmm. Like, I, this is the thing. I am, I love this shit. I absolutely love the psychoanalyzing why he's done the worst book of all time. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Why has this happened? Mm. I blame the public schools. Like, yeah, there is sure. nothing as psychotic yeah. as an institution as the British public school. Like, nothing breaks your brain in quite the same way as sort of flouncing around in an outfit designed by an eccentric 16th century pedophile and like <laughs> learning latin and it it all being for an empire that means nothing anymore and has long since died 
Hey, hey, mm. hey, Alice. Mm. We still got Gibraltar and the and the, <laughs> yeah. pit, and the pit cane islands. Okay, yeah. so we let's all just think carefully before we start down saying Tristan there's no Cunha, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I love pit cane incest island. It's yeah. great. <laughs> but to be fair, we did almost manage from your dad to gather enough money to restore the bell for Brexit. <laughs> it wasn't quite enough, but I think we can all agree that fucking Spain would have had a bit more trouble doing that. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just laughing at the idea that Jacob Rees-Mogg was probably like a secret contestant on the 19. 19- hundreds house and much like somebody surfacing too fast from a dive he didn't he got the bends <laughs> but just like, he got dropped back into society with no reintegration and now he just thinks everything is the year 1900 oh, yeah. it's 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 good by lenin but arranged by an entire country <laughs> so, i want to take a brief detour uh, before we start jacob reese mogg's book into the preface and most famous passage of the 1918 edition of Strachey's eminent victorians as a, by way of contrast the history of the Victorian age will never be written, for we know too much about it. What for a line! Is, what, ignorance, that's, that's a good line, and we're yes. never going to see that after we do this paragraph. Uh, for ignorance is the first requisite of the historian. Ignorance which simplifies and clarifies, which selects and emits, with a placid perfection unattainable by the highest art. It is not by the direct method of a, of a scrupulous narration that the explorer of the past can hope to depict that singular epoch. If he is wise, he will adopt a subtler strategy. He will attack the subject in unexpected places. He will fall upon the flank or the rear, or will shoot a sudden revealing searchlight into obscure recesses hitherto undivined. He will row out of of that great ocean of material and lower down into it here and there a little bucket, which will bring up to the light of day some characteristic specimen from these far depths to be examined with a careful curiosity. That's beautiful. That's that's a delightful... Uh, view of like the historian's task and we're yeah. never going to like we're stuck with Jacob Rees-Mogg for an hour you have like shown us this light and then snatched it away yeah ah the writing of someone who isn't still breastfed <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the spirit of Strachey this episode will not be about like I said the historical ignorance of Jacob Rees-Mogg that has been exposed by legions of liberal journalists and has amounted to nothing but instead about insights into the man himself the spiritual deadness and the frantic need to construct an anachronistic persona for him Himself in place of anything inside. These will be the little buckets that we examine with a careful so, curiosity yes, we, on we, the sea that is Jacob Rees-Mogg. We, mm. we are rowing out over his ignorance and like re- lowering down buckets to bring up some anglerfish. I mm. really want Michael Winterbottom to buy the rights to this book and adapt it like a cock and bull story and like make it into a movie about Jacob Rees-Mogg oh. trying to jerk himself oh, off okay, to his yeah. own price. Copyright, 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 TM, 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 copyright. Yeah. It's IP, that's trash future IP. Yeah. It's like a weird like Charlie Kaufman movie about Jacob mm. Rees-Mogg trying to write his book about the Victorians. Incredible. So, uh, before, because that's not yet been made, the best we have is this podcast. <laughs> so we're going to start. This is from the introduction and this mm. is On Duty. Victorian religiosity connected with a more general belief in duty, a belief that encompassed those who were not especially religious. The slaughter of the First World War made duty an unfashionable concept to later generations, but surely a true patriot must value dutifulness above other virtues. So the First oh. World War was bad, but let's pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's assume that that's just, uh, that's just table stakes. Yeah. If you believe in being dutiful, well, you've got to accept the sum. I'm sorry, lads. Those are the rules. Oh, you don't like getting machine gunned because you've accidentally charged from the wrong trench? Well, sorry to say, boy, but that's what's called being cool. Also, I, I don't wish to do, do this too often, but to remind people of the previous thing where we, where we, the Boris Johnson novel. It's very clear immediately we are dealing with another first draft. Yeah. <laughs> we are 
absolutely oh, oh. dealing We with. will see more evidence of that as we go on. Yeah. That sentence was like trying to solve a magic eye picture. Like It was like you're, you're just trying to hold on to that idea that there's some meaning within uh, it. Mm. So he contradicts himself in two clauses. <laughs> Yeah, also, but also it's important to note that there's a reason why these books are all released as first drafts because they're not designed to be read. Yeah, 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 yeah. So of it's, course, it's like the Juche Library appro- approach to history. It's like you know, the point is to have a huge book on the shelf. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to say anything. It just has to be big mm. and be printed. But <laughs> so, also, I love this, this as, a, as a side detail. We've delayed this episode until we could get an ebook of this because the only other version I could find before recently was the audiobook version that Jacob Rees-Mogg himself narrated. And oh, I would not yeah, subject yeah, yeah. Riley to 16 no, hours no, of that no, man's no. voice. No. I just, further to our, our general point of Britain in 2020 being the Soviet Union, but shit and expensive, we have a shit and expensive version of the Great Soviet Encyclopedia, where it is just like a bunch of one-note biographies stamped together into an enormous volume. So here, <laughs> here's another little tasty morsel for you all. The Victorians had confidence in their civilizing effort, a belief in the goodness of their own nation, and the drive necessary to finish the job. So he's writing a cover letter on behalf of the Victorians for their first, like, <laughs> grad scheme. Finish the job. Civilizing effort hit me ancestrally. I just felt a pain go through three generations. Also, Lawrence Fox is here to argue that this is good. I'm sorry, Ish, you're actually triggered. I was going to think about the the, the courage to finish the job. It's like three three successive invasions of Af- wow. Afghanistan later. It's like, did you really? Also, uh, <laughs> everybody, everybody ask me if he ever defines what the job is that they're finishing. Does he ever define no. the- <laughs> uh, If it was uh, killing a bunch of them, it's a gen- uh, they certainly... It is, it, he's mm. referring to a general sense of stick to that appears to, you know... So you, this is, re- like yeah. we said earlier, not it's to for- toot my own horn, but it's the vibes history. Yes, mm. it's a vibes history. <laughs> did they or did they not finish the spinning gen? <laughs> so answer me that. Why, why do the kids these days have, like, invent new genders instead of invading the Sudan? <laughs> so yeah. here's here's an, here's another one, uh, and this is his main thesis. This is what he's arguing: how favorably this compares with the contemporary nervousness about the country, where moral relativism accepts an equivalence did, between good and bad. Did you just say the thing I just said, but worse written? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Wait, this hang is, on. A contemporary nervousness about Britain, yeah, born out from knowing about Britain. <laughs> like, yeah, and also a contemporary nervousness that hasn't translated into anything political at all. No, I. If- I don't know what election results. I don't know what election results he's been reading, but if anything, well, we could do with a bit more nervousness. Yeah, so, also, he was allowed to write this book. Yeah. Also, here's the thing: it says that the country now has moral relativism, which accepts there's an equivalence between good and bad. So his main thesis mm. is that in the Victorian times, we thought good things were good and bad things were bad. But in modernity, we think good things are bad and bad things are good. We should go back to how it was. Isn't this so, basically the same as that article we read where someone said that people were happier during the Victorian era yes. because there was well, more because joy the expressed in newspapers? More happy words. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Funny how that works. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But also, like, good and bad are not easily defined concepts in terms of academic history Writing. <laughs> like I, yeah. I, I just like the idea that the the Victorians as a thing were like uncontroversial in their own day. Like there were no suffragettes. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Marx was not alive. Uh, none of this stuff was ever like criticized or questioned mm. because they all stuck to it too fucking mm. much. Oh, so I'm really excited by like. 
I'm really excited to get to the graph section in the middle of the book where it's like usages of the word tally ho <laughs> <laughs> like decline steadily through to like 1950 so, or whatever. So, Alice, to speak to your point there, mm. these people are never mentioned because either they're enemies of good things and li- they like bad things like Marx, yeah. or they're people who like good things who merely had a misunderstanding with other people who like good things like the suffragettes. And it was, in fact, the spirit of liberalism that existed during the Victorian era that would have allowed the suffragettes to have the votes eventually. Wow. Yes. Okay. That's wow. kind of how he squares all those circles. Yeah, yeah. No, there just wasn't enough Victorian time. If Queen Victoria had lived longer, I mean, we have yeah, more votes. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but. Uh, so, but this is this is also where I get back to that sense of emptiness because he just, if you think about this, he's talking about a sense of comradeship and national purpose based around just feeling good about one another. These things that give me a feeling of personal connection and purpose. Goop side of fascism. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to get through mm. more of this. The work ethic of our forebears is also deeply admirable. It is not that people are lazier today, rather that leisure has come to be seen as a right rather than as a reward for work. You know, leisure, like the weekend, like the thing that trade unionists fought for as a right (laughs) to leisure. Just just because they Mm. existed in Victorian times and affected political change on them doesn't mean they were Victorians. No, that was no. not. No, the weekend is not a Victorian concept. It's actually a postmodern concept that came earlier. Yeah, because, because, <laughs> because, like all of those existed like entirely outside Victorianness because they were doing Antifa shit. So this is where we today can and must learn from our ancestors. He says, after all, is it not still true that the British Constitution is a model that works better than those in other nations? No. <laughs> define no. other nations. No, define better. Yeah, <laughs> define the British Constitution. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we even need to do any exist. of that. We, we don't need to like do mm. any of this Dicean framework stuff. We can just say no. Mm. Like no, actually, even if we accept every single part of your thesis here, we can just answer the question with no. No, so, it doesn't. Well, by your own logic, thing, no. By, by the British Constitution, what he actually means is the ability to endlessly eat boiled, unseasoned meat and I not know. die. So he, what he said, he goes on. That is why the British Constitution has been so widely copied. Uh, That's yeah. why. You know that sure is why. It just, yeah. it just like, uh, was naturally occurring. It fell like rain oh, from the sorry. heavens. He, he does define the British Constitution. Oh. Uh, he says, democracy, the rule of law, the rights of property, and freedom of speech. That, that's not defining it's it. That's not just characterizing it. Is he, is he literally knew like what Milo that's was a, saying? Like it's a like laundry the, list of things. Like the British vibes. Constitution is in like the British, the Yo, body of the British. He means the vibe. Dicey means the vibes of the British Constitution. He means yes. he means the vibe of the government being like cool. Mm. No, but also he the British Constitution is like the. Um, Baseball stadium in Field of Dreams. Like the whole thing is like, mm. if you call, if you build it, they will come. So it's yeah, just yeah. like, it's just whatever you want it to be at that given but moment. Actually, slightly too many of them will come, and we have to do something about it. <laughs> uh, so, for, uh, it, it, for the Victorians and us, this constitution led to a stable and prosperous state. No, From that bedrock, the mm. conditions of the people were improved for the Victorians and continue to improve now. Uh, no. Um, nope. No. So it's from this I, little. I, I know nub. we're not yeah, doing right. the the like we're critiquing his history stuff because it's all going to be like this and it's all yeah. going to be so bad. But it's like it's worth remembering that right now, fucking horrible histories. A show for children is an enemy of the state for uh, <laughs> suggesting that maybe some of the things that the Victorians did were bad <laughs> in the gentlest them. way. 
I, of course, have no comment on that story. <laughs> <laughs> However, we brought in Lawrence Fox. <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment on that, uh, given that uh, apparently even just introducing it yeah. makes me anti-British <laughs> and against the values mm. of the country. But yes, it, it, yes, it is. It does make... It's been an interesting weekend as we record off the back of the Victorian sketch from the Horrible mm. Histories thing. It does show you the level of sensitivity that people have about even the mildest critique of, you know, like mm. robust mm. debate and freedom of speech are one of the things that are apparently in Jacob Rees-Mogg's imaginary British constitution. But if you... But it's robust debate about what kind of phrenology is good. Or, yeah, it's, or, the, yeah, or, yeah, it's, yeah. or it's robust debate about things that are so abstract, like, you know, what does good taste like or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, it just, mm. it's, it's pointless. But this is, this is, this is <laughs> what actually... What should Nanny make for dinner? <laughs> so this, but, uh, from the position... From the position of, of it's just the starting point that Jacob Rees-Mogg actually has no internal life. Like, he's not fully, like, he's just... He's he an is, NPC. He's, he's, yeah, he's just, a, he's an, a, a husk. From that starting mm. point... He's the, a townsperson who gives you a task in an RPG. <laughs> oh, no. we, we come, come to, to that later. Minecraft villager oh. noise? <laughs> <laughs> we come to that later, because we do think of that, but not quite in that way. So, but from that position, the view of a honey-cheeked prelapsarian Victorian time where you didn't have to wrestle with people objecting to you doing what you do mm. must seem very seductive. And it's a very personal connection to something immaterial that Jacob Rees-Mogg is yearning for. He's writing himself a happy place. And so when people on when when people who have that same thing as their happy place, people who feel that desperate need to connect with something bigger than them, yeah. see their nostalgic vision of what the world was like attacked, they take it very, very personally. Yeah, sure. And they the problem is that nostalgic vision isn't just a personal preference about how they'd like to think of the country, it results in a lot of fascism. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not just aesthetic. They don't just want the stovepipe hats, right? <laughs> yeah. We, we forget what comes under the stovepipe hat. <laughs> An even smaller stovepipe hat. <laughs> and within that so, stovepipe hat, a set of phrenology calipers. So mm -hmm. for the sake of my own Twitter feed, all I'll say is you lot are a bunch of anti-British assholes and you're trying to brainwash children. Okay? <laughs> Nish, you, you know, that actually is deft diplomacy, unlike whatever bullshit he's going to say about about Palmerston. <laughs> so we also have to remember, like all pieces of, of critical writing, and this is criticizing, it's just criticizing criticism. Who is Jacob Rees-Mogg writing against? Because a critical piece of writing always has to defend a position. And this piece of writing is basically critical against critics who would consider like year five history to be overly complex critical theory designed <laughs> to yeah. undermine the legacy of Lord Palmerston. Who criticizes the critics, well. Which, which, is, which is personified within Lytton Strachey throughout the book, this early 20th century um, mm -hmm. Bloomsbury Group member. So Everything's fine. Don't include my imaginary nostalgia, which I've cultivated in order to feel less empty. So, um, uh, this is this is wrapping up the introduction. The British today have even more opportunity than the Victorians did to be successful. <laughs> you know that is just a uh... Tumblr joke. If I it, if I fed a medieval woman even one of my sour M and M's, she would die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. If we cannot share their inner belief and self-confidence that propelled the Victorians, we will stand still, petrified as other nations overtake us. Dude, Margaret, it's a little bit late for that, don't you think? Mar Margaret Thatcher showed how the new Victorian spirit can work and, and reinvigorate a failing nation. Uh, what? 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 Yeah. 
It's the, the, oh yeah, the, Victorian. the, fucking, the Victorians hated coal mining. They couldn't stand it. <laughs> the, the, this book was written for a world in which the Suez crisis worked out quite differently. I think it, it's weird mm. to me because I was just thinking about this. I remember there was a, a story in the news, kind of apropos of nothing here, but th- they found a skeleton somewhere near like Limehouse, and it was from like the early Middle Ages. And this person had way, way, way better teeth than like most bodies they found from the Victorian era because it fucking sucked because like people had it was yeah. actually got worse here like mm. for your average person's quality yeah, of but life the glory was up glory <laughs> was off <laughs> the charts that's mm. also true of like general hygiene like if you read uh, Eleanor Herman's Royal Art of Poison there's a th- there's a long section in there about how for years uh, during the medieval and early modern periods aristocrats had worse health care because they were just pouring gold and stuff into themselves while peasants were like using <laughs> herbs and things because that's what you could find exactly so, yeah since, since Thatcher left office the forces of stagnation trepidation and hesitation have returned these heroes of old who possessed belief in patriotism a sense of duty and a confidence in progress and knowledge of civilization wait so Margaret Thatcher us- is an honorary Victorian yes. now that's where this yes. book has gone already yes. Okay. One big cursed stovepipe hats. <laughs> what the fuck is he on about? Well, it's that Margaret Thatcher did Thatcherism, which is mm. where you flog off all of the like state-owned resources to like private companies, which in a sense is kind of what Queen Victoria did. When you think about it, and if you've been inhaling smoke for a while, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like you you do need a carbon monoxide detector just in case. Yeah. There's but, a there's a graph between uh you know kind of the economy, but not defined as to what that means going up, and also like amount of table legs covered for the sake of decency. Yeah. Well, the thing is, right, you have to remember that this only makes sense if you view it as Jacob Rees-Mogg yearning for his, for meaning and connection, yes. because. It, because that—that's what this is. This is the this is the connection of my personal acquisitiveness to the and the these sort of sets of policies that benefit well me and four other people yeah. that have been directly connected to the vigor, spirit, and moral worth of us as a national group. Yes, I, I feel it, like- it has to mean something, and it has to be for the benefit of a nation that still exists. And like, if Britain has changed in some ways since the like mm. fucking Victorian values with which I was inculcated while like worrying about showing the Latin master too much leg, then you know what am I to do but to try and drag us back to it by writing a fucking uh, polemic? So but don't wait, forget. What he's saying oh. is that nothing of value, including fighting a war against fascism, setting up the welfare state of the National Health Service, nothing of any value happened between the Victorians and Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I mean, he's heavily implying it. So basically mm. between 1901 and 1979 is a dead oh, zone. Oh, sorry, he never speak <laughs> of. He says that the Victorian period lasted from about 1790 until about, like, 1920. Right, okay. Just, y- you know who was right, cucked okay. was Winston Churchill, right? Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> it was until women got the vote and started wearing those short dresses. That was when everything went downhill. So, what we, we say is, uh, the other thing is, like, this is a fusing of Victorian ideology and neoliberal, Victorian morals and aesthetics with neoliberalism. But he finishes the, the, the paragraph. This is the fin- end of the introduction. Um, in, in show, they're proving like, all these modern trepidatious people, people wrong. He says, even if the Litton Strackies of the world disbelieve in Malcolm, <laughs> he was wrong. Mm. So, two questions for you. Owned. So, when that, that segue into Margaret Thatcher, did you 
edit that like there was inter- interspersing text or was that legitimately how that paragraph Did you edit out the when, sentence when hey, we... i'm about to talk some absolute horseshit <laughs> no, that just... when we put the notes for this together uh, riley and i edited this together and one of the decisions we made early on was that we were not going to abridge jacob reese mogg at all because this is just how he writes because I'm just like, I realized that your comment previously that there's sort of like the purview of liberal hist- liberal journalists to make fun of the bad history. But like, this is terrible writing. And it's a weird conundrum <laughs> when somebody has gotten to this like Sun King position in British politics that like no editor is allowed to change their prose because that's Marxism for some reason. <laughs> what the hell I'm, is I'm this? I'm excited for like, f- like the future descendant of Jacob Rees-Mogg in 110 years time who will be forced to like quote tweet all of my own tweets being like, ha, owned. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that, that, we, we edited very, very little, if anything. This is just how he writes. It, it was about picking the paragraphs, not the words within the paragraphs. Mm. So here's our, also our thesis within his thesis. Jacob Rees-Mogg has to be understood as playing World of Warcraft. Queen Victoria has been <laughs> reborn as Margaret Thatcher and has given mm. him the main quest, which is to make Britain good. The British proletariat are by and large friendly NPCs, some of whom might give you quests. Most of them just walk around. Uh, the other factions players are Lit and Strikey. Because <laughs> that's PvP. Yeah. yeah, it's PvP with Lit and Strikey. And then the non-Western proletariat are like random encounters who you have to grind for rep with the East India Company or Raytheon or whatever. <laughs> so it's like, bring me nine thuggy belts for a new musket enchantment. <laughs> yeah, because he has he has no like internal life, right? He can't we're talking about psychopath shit. He can't picture other people as having like their own thoughts or personalities. So of course they're just like they're just mobs. <laughs> I so, still, I because even for someone of Jacob Rees-Mogg's politics, like to sort of essentially even erase, Ch- like even Churchill seems to have been like a too much for this dude. Well, like look, it's we've only done a few of the biographies. Maybe Churchill is referenced in some of the other ones. I believe he's quoted a few times. Right, right, right. But he's really got to feel like Churchill. Even Rhys Mogg mm. must like Churchill. Yeah. Oh yeah, he does. Like, he's like, just like staying- the one Victorian who like dragged us through our soy yeah, war. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. how. He well, did, don't yeah. forget Churchill was a Victorian. So <laughs> let's course. start. Yeah, because being mm. Victorian is about a vibe, and Britain used to have that <laughs> vibe, and then Churchill had that vibe, Thatcher had that vibe, and if we do Brexit, we'll all have that vibe. Well, we're but doing Brexit, thing, but though, like, we'll have that the, vibe. Then why write? Then why write a book about the Victorians if the center point of your thesis is that? you can be a Victorian by being Margaret Thatcher, then well, why just write about because Thatcher? Because he wants to connect <laughs> neoliberalism to some kind of British identity that's deeply rooted in history. That's why. Exactly. He's just very, very stupid. He, he wants it to be an Agatha Christie novel about why the housing market should only enrich one guy. Yes. So, <laughs> well, let's start the first biography. This is a quick hit because it's so long. We're going to skip through a few of them, but then we're going to go deep into a couple. Yeah. So, uh, Robert Peel. By 1828, Robert Peel was ready to set about massive police reform in London, and in these pre-Victorian years, he laid suitably moral foundations for the Metropolitan Police, Uh the first truly Victorian organization. (laughs) And which never had any problems ever again. He says massive police reform, but the police just didn't exist before Robert Peel. Yeah. What is that, if not the biggest reform of all? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a reform from an, the opposite of police to police. Ch- chapter one, page one, 72 point font, cop zone. <laughs> he sought for his new police force, men of the utmost probity, and he saw to it that they would not be tempted by outside blandishments or financial gain. And what's crucial... <laughs> fuck off with the word blandishment. And what's crucial is that Jacob Rees-Mogg doesn't say how he went about doing that. He just reassures us that he did. <laughs> you, know, you know 
who has never been bribed by anyone ever as a Met Police officer. <laughs> no. Yeah. Certainly not one in the Victorian era. But um, they were all just... Well, their hats were too tall yeah, for just, them to be bribed. Like, it absolutely never happened that like yeah. a series of cartoonish uh, villains were like robbing a bank and then presented mm. a constable with like a, a helping Christmas ham. And would like well, would be waved on their way. So what 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 he thinks though is that the police force would have been tempted, but we needed a, we needed Robert Peel to come in and do morality to it. Uh-huh. Uh, so to understand Peel, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg continues to say, and the age he brought into being, yo yo, what's up? Again, mm. he's not defining any of these things. This is worse than Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> in, 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 AC, in, in 1828, Robert Peel invented cops. And, and, <laughs> and then we learned about being good, because if you're not mm. being good, then the cops are, are bad. Right. Without Robert Peel, you couldn't have had the TV show, Cops, which is very fun. <laughs> so, I, I to, would totally watch Victorian cops, though. Like Victorian to, road wars. To understand, to understand Peel in the age he brought into being is to appreciate that and can we get a little ding every time I say Victorian in the next paragraph? Okay, fine. Is to appreciate that pivotal Victorian virtue of respectability. There are any number of other Victorian exemplars. <laughs> Such men showed w- just what was industriously possible. Victorian values was not a slogan of a century to come, but a real scheme of morals which sought to improve, sustain, and care for the community as a whole and in a hard headed fashion to boot. We- to boot? You gotta mm. hit the word count, guys. You've gotta do it. <laughs> it's like what I was writing essays. That is the most Victorian thing, though. Yeah, it's what I used to write yeah, essays by the word. Yeah. Just keep restating the screw title. Screw Flanders. Screw Flanders. <laughs> yeah, screw Flanders. Yeah. Yeah. If it's a code of values, then can we can we have it codified, please? Yep. And yeah. secondly, yeah. Yeah. this makes <laughs> this makes fucking, Skinner like the level of just like straight up determinism here. This 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 makes Hansel and Gretel look like a fucking postmodern novel. I mean, like <laughs> I just hearing this stuff, I just, I've never heard something this simplistic. You know what's really funny though is that Peel did try to codify his own values, like he that like the principles of policing was something he came up with, mm. and Jacob Rees-Mogg just doesn't bother to no, like does not cite that. No. Because it wasn't a su- it wasn't a runaway success as he would define yeah. it, so he just doesn't make it into the book for some reason. Damn, I you hate it. Would have had to good read. hard. Yeah. Also, Victorian values was not the slogan of a century to come, but a real scheme of morals which sought to improve, sustain, and care for a community as a whole, and in a hard-headed fashion to boot. All good history writing includes the phrase "to boot." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. If there's one thing I want from history, it's boots. Yeah, exactly. And if there's one thing that I take away from my knowledge of the Victorians, it's bringing up the community together with a spirit of community involvement. <laughs> it's like, yeah. mm. Victorian community this, was like, the community for Victorians yeah. among Victorians in that community. Yeah, exactly. This, 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 this of... podcast recorded in Whitechapel, a place where mm. the Metropolitan Police famously uplifted and showed great <laughs> moral probity. Lots of, lots of local Victorian industrialists would do good things to the community, like run, uh, run like youth activities for young people where mm. they could come and learn to use a steam loom <laughs> um, and climb into the narrow spaces of the the steam loom also, to dangerously all of retrieve Dickens things. novels are famously about how equal everyone was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the other story, so Jacob Rees-Mogg sees the task of the historian here as defending the Metropolitan Police as a fundamentally good institution, and if you're criticizing it, then you're Littenstracky. <laughs> well, mm. On the one hand, like the, the the image of like rowing out onto the sea of ignorance and like uh, like rescuing individual things to like carefully consider them, and on the other, the cops is good. So, mm. Lord Palmerston. Lord Feb- Palmerston. Pitt the Elder. Elder. That's, uh, it's so funny that there is just a, a like decades worth of a generation 
that only mm. associates Lord Palmerston with Barney's drunken bar fight. <laughs> so this is my favorite. This is my favorite line from the entire book. From the entire book, this is my favorite mm. line. In February 1855, Palmerston at last attained the greatest office of all with his appointment as Prime Minister. Yeah, in the politics game, there's only one big boy at the top spot. Everyone's talking about it. Who's the prime minister? Mm. In, in, the, in the Super Bowl of politics, there's one quarterback, and that quarterback's name, the president. Yeah. <laughs> well, to be fair, there was one other top spot, which was called being Queen Victoria. But that one had already been snapped up by another hot young property known as Queen Victoria. Yeah. She has a biography in this towards the end. Oh, incredible. We don't oh, talk the about it today. The greatest oh. Victorian of all. Yeah. The, vi- the, the titular only woman. Victorian. So good, the only woman. <laughs> so good they named her after the Victorian era. The woman who came to signify the Victorian era, Queen Victoria. I legitimately feel like that guy who eats old rations on YouTube and ate the fucking potted meat from the Victorian era learned more about the Victorian era than anyone who reads this book would. Steve M. R. E. Info is being piloted by Victorian <laughs> gut parasites right now. I really he's feel the, like... He's the only living Victorian. The last line of this book is surely and truly the Victorians were in us all along. <laughs> so... Uh, Palmerston rejected ideologically dogmatic excesses, dismissing, for example, the idea that cholera was an act of God that could be halted by penitential fasting. Instead, that's not he- an ideologically dogmatic excess. That's just being dumb. <laughs> Instead, mm. he pressed publicly the idea that civics works in the poorest areas were the best way to stop diseases which led to death. And here's how Jacob Rees-Mogg sort of puts this together into a narrative. He says, in other words, his work in government was connected with his Edinburgh philosophic apprenticeship and enabled to bring his intelligence and learning to bear for the good of the people. Oh, Wait, just... because otherwise he'd have to admit that spending money on public infrastructure stops poor people no, no, from no, no, dying. No, no, no. No, it's that, it's that he says, he says, that Jacob Rees-Mogg's argument is that because Lord Palmerston spent several years at the University of Edinburgh, which was like the center of the Scottish Enlightenment at the time, which was all about like reason and science and so on, that Lord Palmerston was able to use A-B reasoning. <laughs> yes, yeah, Scotland invented thinking. Before that, nobody yeah. like, there wasn't even thinking one back then, let alone yeah. thinking two. So no. it, 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 this is it, this is because like the historian's job we go back is to try and draw together a story to bring up insights from the sea of of of, of your subject, and he said, "Hmm, j- I bet I know where Lord Palmerston learned how to think. It was Edinburgh, the place that came up with it." Mm. <laughs> I like how when uh, when uh, Lord Palmerston suggests like maybe not making all the sewers open to stop people dying of cholera, it's like good, it's king shit because it was Victorian. But when someone suggests taking the highly flammable cladding off of the council blocks that's like that's dumb guy shit that's because you're not a philosopher king about it yeah. if you'd they gone to the university faster. of edinburgh and like uh come back learning how to think and then thought wisely that it would be good to aliment the poor and uplift them by not having them be on fire then you mm. know that would be good i've done 13 edinburgh festivals does that mean I can now tell Jacob Rees-Mogg to stop being such a cunt? <laughs> <laughs> so this should also remind you a bit of Steven Pinker, because like, yeah, the, the old Palmerston's two years he spent in Edinburgh are used as the root cause of his ability to use evidence to solve problems. But now we're going to go to uh, General Sir Charles Napier, Ooh. Uh, the conqueror mm, yes. of Sindh. Friend of the show. <laughs> so um, I... Everyone do grasp on to something, because if you thought that po- that that thing about the police where he was like, he made sure none of them were bad, check out this next paragraph. Ooh. Chapter 2, page 1, 72 point font, Troop Zone. Mm. 
In the aftermath of the British victory, Hyderabad opened its gates and Napier gallantly returned to the emirs the jeweled swords they had ceremonially surrendered to him in token of defeat. Awful sentence. That was nice of him, I guess. He, he further mm. ensured that Cindy women were guarded and went unmolested. And indeed, when the editor of the Bombay Unlike Times... The boys. When the editor <laughs> of the Bombay Times claimed that they were systematically violated by the army, all 104 of Napier's officers who survived the battle immediately signed a letter promising they didn't. Well, I wow. have no further questions. <laughs> I oh one. my god. <laughs> I've never... Oh, this is amazing. This is like a 10 out of 10. Like, no, actually, all the officers were in Pizza Express. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> it's about. It's very convenient to no. stay in Hyderabad. Yeah. Indeed, so, it's very convenient. This is the next sentence. Sorry, he said, signed a letter refuting this, was, was what he said. For Napier believed in the moral force of intervention and of intervention with honor. Because that causal, that causal word, for, starting the sentence, absolutely follows from that previous line. <laughs> In, in, intervention intervention with honor is when you invade somebody's country but you don't like molest their women or you do but you say you don't you promise you didn't yeah, yeah, intervention yeah. with honor sounds like a tom clancy novel yeah. <laughs> you say that if it were to have been done then it would have been bad yes that is the, but it didn't yeah. happen we've established that and how no. do we know because some guys all said it didn't this is yeah, exactly. Exactly. johnny cochran shit <laughs> Can I also say that like, obviously the reason why Jacob Rees-Mogg lo loves Charles Napier is that Charles Napier did the most Jacob Rees-Mogg thing of all time, oh, the which fucking is that Latin when, pun. yes, when he conquered when he conquered Sindh, the message he sent to London to the fucking top brass was "Pekawi," which is the Latin past participle of uh, fucking which means to Sin, I have yeah. sinned. Yeah. So it's like oh, a Latin pun. fucking hell. <laughs> yeah. And that's the kind of shit Jacob Rees-Mogg would literally uh, do now. That yes. is insult to injury. I mean, yeah. he wouldn't yeah. be smart enough to do that now. You, but ancestors yes. conquered by a nerd, Nish. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I, to say it. He would say it, but he'd say Pekavi. Yeah. Indeed. It's a repeated refrain of the great British comedian Ahir Shah, but can you believe our ancestors were conquered by someone a generation so lame? Yeah. <laughs> he was like uh he was like Pekawi, and then when they were like, Did your officers kind of molest all these women? And he's like, uh non Pekawi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, part of the problem with that is that Latin doesn't have a distinct word for no exactly. Yeah. So mm. we had to mini, like mini have May. this long signature yeah. letter. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Um, that is fucking horrific. Yeah. So I, I, again, it's just the whole like, well, there's all of these sources that say the thing I don't like, but then the thing that makes me just feel good about this grand national project and all of the forms it has taken, whether the neoliberal one or the imperial one, it's morally upright. And speaking of, well, he, he if gave, the letter he is ripped, you must acquit. People. He gave the important people their swords back, and that means that he was gallant. Yeah. Awful. So, Napier's quest was to pull Sindh out of the feudalism he saw as being responsible for the starvation and squalor, which was visible uh, to every British official. Uh, uh, no. no! Barbershop Quartet from Trash <laughs> Specifically, his plan was to encourage local notables to reject their previous role as armed chieftains and embrace a new role as improving resident landlords. He was Pete Buttigieg of the 19th century. Oh, he tried to McKinsey Sindh. So, here, Napier's relative lack of experience told with negative consequences for his policy of moral intervention, because basically he just magicked into existence a bunch of incredibly extra extractive, abusive landlords by doing what he did to Ireland, which did the same thing there. Pete 
Fucking huh. Buttigieg yeah. rides again before his he day. He basically was like, "We you know how we can improve the lives of people and bring them out from under squalor? Let's do here what Britain did to Ireland. Oh, Christ. I assume that'll be fine. But here's why that's actually okay, Nish, mm. and why you're being unfair. <laughs> why you're, why, you're why being, I hate Britain. Sorry, you're being yeah. a bit of a lit and right now. <laughs> yeah. um, because, as Jacob Rees-Mogg says, even though it didn't work, Napier's <laughs> intentions were always good. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're looking in the mirror and you're, you know, you're being very lit and strakey on yourself. Try and give yourself a little bit of Jacob Rees Mogg too. So he, he he fucked up and he like killed a lot of people, but he was pure of heart. Was the thing? Well, oh he was also brave God. and fair. You know, like the maidens of old. Oh, uh, okay. He opposed evil practices as well. well what, such if, as what, sooty. If, what if he had like opposed evil practices and his intentions were good, but also he was a massive coward? Just out of curiosity. He that, opposed like, evil practices in every sense except the one sense of not doing them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he deserved, oh, I oppose this, he said. That's the <laughs> least important it. sense. Also, by the way, Napier's intentions were always good. Good, another word that is just not being defined throughout this entire book. That's what, again, good academic history writing should use the word good liberally. <laughs> well, good, good means you were wearing a bow tie at the time, no, no, right? Good means good and bad means bad, and people have forgotten that. Mm. Um, but like you so, say, this is like primary school. Like if you wrote an essay in primary school saying the past is bad, your teacher would be like, come on, mate. I know you're eight years old and you literally just stopped shitting your pants, but let's try and elevate a little bit beyond look, the past was This good. is what happens when you have a nanny forever. <laughs> yeah. um, he deserve Napier deserves his place in the pantheon of heroes. Definitely uh, the original the title of his that? book. Definitely what he was going to call it. Percy Jackson book? <laughs> you know, that, that thing that Jacob Rees-Mogg would like us to have. It to me. Like, maybe? Damn. Uh, but that does not mean everything he tried succeeded. If there was no standard, there would be no heroes. Avengers East India game. <laughs> so, but, uh, and the, 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 the historical point about this, you know, we've made, but the psychoanalytic point is that Rees-Mogg is inventing a fantasy in which his I own intentions... I can still be a hero. I can still be yeah, a hero. Yeah, I right, can right. still be a hero. But, I have fucked up everything, but my, my intentions are good, and that's heroic. Well, and if you combine two very important qualities of Napier that are the ones he pulls out, which is that intentions are all that ever matter, and the best way to actually make make people's lives better is to be an improving landlord. So mm. this is basically just the more my mm. hedge fund owns, the better the world gets. Fucking hell. This is wow. the big one. Uh -oh. This is the big boy we're coming to next. William Saliman. Uh -oh. Chapter three. Page one, 72 point font, cop troop zone. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from Jacob Rees-Mogg's introduction to the piece. And don't worry, we're going to define all of these terms as we go through. Mm. He's certainly fucking not. Thuggy did not exist. And it never existed. No, it was merely the product of lurid Victorian Orientalist sensationalism. Ooh! Mm. This, this, is, this is the spectator article yeah. phenomenon, isn't yeah. it? Where he's about to say, he's saying the right thing. For the first paragraph, yeah, because we'll get to what Thuggy is yeah. in a bit, because it's true. It was the project, a uh, product of the Victorians being lurid Orientalist sensationalists, mm. which Jacob is definitely the bit about the Victorians that Jacob Rees-Mogg doesn't like. So mm. he continues. She hadn't gotten that in, from the previous in, bits. In defining what Orientalist means, he says the, the Western Orientalists were capable of all kinds of wickedness in the form of tales, stories and accounts. Their intent being to criticize and patronize Eastern civilizations, to diminish them in the eyes of Western readers and consumers, and in so doing to 
justify Western predation, exploitation, settlement, and theft of their land and assets. Okay, hence, so ho- justify hold on, the hold things on. that I've already said are good. Hence, yeah, buggy, hold on a second, hence, though. Buggy was a concept that had to be dreamed up because Indian civilization had to be labeled as violent, murderous, and beyond that, the pale. That's that's why uh, beyond the pale is a good word, though, because like that mm. was applied to colonialism in Ireland, the pale being the pale of settlement around Dublin, uh, beyond which English law did not apply, and you could just do whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, my... <laughs> Clearly, the, the, this is the, this is the important bit to me because it means that he understands uh, how bad faith this is. Like all of the primary mm. school history stuff, yeah, whatever, fine. But like, he's not stupid. He's just summarized in a sort of arch ironic tone what Orientalism is, and he's right about it. Which means he knows what he's doing in this next bit that's coming up, where I'm sure he just takes a giant shit on the whole concept. Oh Christ! So he could. Have stopped here. Mm. Yeah. But fine. then, how and would have, this great book have been written? All absolutely fine. What an interesting thing to have written. Go ahead. I see mm. no reason to assume this will not continue in the same vein. <laughs> <laughs> Thus runs the prevailing academic approach <laughs> to the phenomenon of thuggy and its untold thousands of victims. Put forward by certain people from the early 20th century <laughs> yo, who I won't uh, name. Yo, uh, why, why, why are the victims untold? Like, mm. it, just just told them. Like, yeah. at, at least people on Twitter will be like, yo, um, Stalin killed 11 trillion people. Like, that's... <laughs> told. So, mm. why lift a finger or a pen to combat the actions of such murderers and villains when one could instead avert one's eye and rationalize them out of existence? So that whole thing we said about Victorian Orientalists up at the top, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> That's why this is so cynical, right? Is is that he included that first part. He didn't need to. He could have just gone with, this thing was real and it was bad and it killed 11 trillion people. Uh, but it, instead he had to have this like little aside to get his dig in at Lytton Strake and whoever else. And it just, it just shows how false and how venomous this whole book and person is. Yeah. And also the whole thing is he says, okay... His, his argument here is just ignore the, stu- uh, the first stuff about how people invent insane stories to justify imperialism because ignoring the insaneness of the story that we're about to tell to justify imperialism, you're the real racist. What if the thuggy oh. killed a billion Indians? Okay, <laughs> You'd feel yeah. pretty bad then. What the fuck? So what was thuggy? I'm going to go now. Nate, I know you know. So I'm going to start with Milo. What do you think thuggy was? Um, a kind of a very early Indian SoundCloud rapper. Are you doing the startup round with Thuggy? <laughs> yes. Uh, Nish, what do you think Thuggy was? Well, I'm assuming it's going to be a not particularly complimentary depiction of one of my forefathers. Uh, sort of. Yeah. It is the Thuggy were seen as a uh, they were a a murder cult. That existed up and down all of wherever the British wanted to go take stuff. Coincidentally. Right. What a coincidence. Mm. And the way mm. to understand it is it's essentially the knockout game. It's it, it's pure knockout game stuff where it's you make up a myth that the people you want to police are doing. And then you say, well, they're doing it. And if you don't believe they're doing it, then you must hate them. Right. So this is from other sources. In the 1820s, Captain William Sleeman had made the first discoveries of strangled travelers in shallow graves around Madras, and his just dry Mm. reports of these things ended up being sensationalized and exaggerated to create a moral panic all around the English-speaking world about a murder cult in India called the Thuggy. Yeah, because you you can't, like, rob and murder people uh, for reasons other than cults. 
Especially, yeah, yeah. especially if you have like uh, whatever like phrenological configuration yeah, a, we've decided. It's a melanin thing. As, as yeah, we know, these guys can see my skull shape. Yeah. I'm wait. I'm moments away from forming a cult. Wait, the British <laughs> Empire was a cult. <laughs> uh, so James Sleeman, writing about his grandfather in the late Victorian period, described the thuggy thusly. The taking of human life for the sheer lust of killing was their main object. <laughs> the plunder, however pleasant, being a secondary consideration. Here Yo, was no body of killing so much. Here was no body mm. of amateur assassins driven to crime by force of circumstance, but men of seeming respectability and high intelligence, often occupying positions of importance and responsibility in normal lives, secretly trained from boyhood in the highest degree of skill and strangulation. <laughs> Yo, they were doing Assassin's it's Creed one shit. strangling officers. So basically, in Britain, a country that famous for fucking highwaymen robberies, thinks that in India they rob people not not because they want money, but rather because they're all part of a ninja cult. So, <laughs> so and kids, God's they, laws. I they do like they, they, they have kids throwing fucking ninja stars and climbing rope ladders when they're five, yeah. Yeah. not These. to take money, but just for the love of the sport. These so, uh, so it's fox hunting, but for people. So. It's what we. This is the real history of it, or as close as we can summarize, mm. which is that this is just disparate populations of, as you said, Nate, bandits and highwaymen pushed to crime frequently as gangs of demobilized mercenaries who were made necessary by British destabilization of the region um, as they fostered internecine war between emirs and maharajas and stuff. Think of them as like the Indian condottieri. And there emerged this myth of a sacrificing cult of murderers devoted to the killing of travelers as a ritual to appease Kali, necessitating ever more British law, which, by the way, is good. And that's where we get the word thug. Fucking hell. <laughs> Lo love, to, love, to, love to murder to appease the, my, like, uh, so, strange exotic goddess or whatever. So, keeping an eye on the time, I'm going to talk Sleeman. Mm. William Sleeman, Jacob Rees-Mogg writes, was almost a prototype Victorian. <laughs> so, almost. Almost a prototype Victorian. All, so, Wait, we so know he's what like this means. like a pre-prototype. Well, yeah, it's like, well, he's a prototype Victorian, so we know what that means, obviously. Yeah, Don't even yeah. need to say it. He's and, like a back-of-a-fag-packet drawing yeah. of an idea <laughs> for a Victorian. Well, he's almost that. Yeah. Uh, so, his success exemplified that great, if unsung, Victorian virtue of sound, strong administration. No, that was pretty sung. No, here we go. Here, hold on, hold on. This is, this is another one of my favorite lines. It shows this was a, a first draft. The a great if unsung Victorian virtue of sound, strong administration. Indeed, he was a classic administrator. What? Those, those two sentences both go together. <laughs> this is like this is like uh, if you just took the fucking uh, the music off of uh, like uh, HMS Pinafore or something, right? It's like he's the yeah, very modern of a modern major administrator. Well, no, it, it uh, is. It is. It's like it's got choruses. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the tasks he accomplished would stay accomplished. Jesus what? Christ. And stay accomplished. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the thuggies the seem to no longer have been murdering people. Song. This is what would have happened if Hamilton had been written by white people. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's it, yeah, it's like the thuggy are no longer murdering people. We've gone back to good old British gangs of bandits. <laughs> this is the mm. very idea of being a good Victorian. Uh, so he was a good Victorian administrator, inasmuch as his job was to administrate in Victorian times, and boy was he good at it. <laughs> how fortunate, and this is Jacob Rees Mogg again, how fortunate, how providential that such a man was on hand in the subcontinent to take a look at India in the round and to oh, identify thanks. precisely those Ooh. aspects of its life and character that must change. Look at oh, India oh. in the round. God. And that's where he gets to the thuggy. He was so a McKinsey he consultant once again. He, yes. like, he, he identified externalities, such as the stranglings, and, uh, like, right-sized them. Uh, cool. So here's, here is the, here's, mm. another, here's another really good bit of history writing. We're going to do a little bell when we have the best words in any history book come in. 
Sleeman's part in encountering and then exterminating the thuggy came about by chance. He happened to be on the spot when several incidents occurred. Uh, history bell here. On the other hand, perhaps fate or destiny had ordained precisely that Sleeman be on that spot. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, fate, destiny, <laughs> these historical concepts. Again, concepts that make sense if you're writing to yourself to fill yourself with a purpose that's been robbed from yeah. you by your sociopathic father. But concepts that don't make sense in the context of an academic history book. Oh, that uh. is superb. <laughs> uh, for it needed such a man as he to deal with a situation that so many before him had failed to resolve. Uh, anyway, I love to write a history what? book that includes the phase, phrase, perhaps fate or destiny. <laughs> our, our apologize to friend of the show, Eleanor Yanaka. I'm sure you've torn yeah. out your AirPods at this point. I, I love to I love to show up, show up in a country and just start a load of murdering and then be like, damn, someone's got to do something about all this murdering. <laughs> oh, my God. So. It, it is it's, very similar to, like, planting a gun on somebody, right? Like... Planting the thuggy. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, they were noted at the time as being closely shaved and oiled all over so that if caught, they could slip <laughs> under <laughs> Just truly, my friends on the truly, cricket team. Truly the original smooth criminal. <laughs> <laughs> so, fellas, fellas he, is it gay to be smoothly oiled all over? So oh, if, you, if you believe, so he says, remember, the first thing he says, it's orientalist not to believe, it's, it is, no, sorry, it's not orientalist, it's racist against Indians, because you don't care about them, to not believe everything you hear about the thuggy. Uh, and so that means that if you're not a real racist, you therefore have to believe that there was a cadre of shaled, shaved, oiled, and mostly nude men running around <laughs> India strangling each other. Oh my god, it's like Mountain Blade. They're just getting robbed by naked guys. He basically, oh he basically oh, says, oh, like the setup in the initial paragraphs you read was to su suggest that he's, you are blaming the victim if you don't believe this. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. not respecting Indian you're trying, agency. You're trying whatever. to rationalize away all this bad mm. stuff that's happening. Can we please believe women? We're here, I'm defining <laughs> women as the British army. <laughs> so, they also exploited what many observers recognized as a weakness implicit in Indian society as a result Ooh. of the governance of the East India Company, because mm. the subcontinent was split between regions ruled directly by the company and native states under varying degrees of British sway and regulation, and so law and order there tended to be fragmented until Sleeman took an Interest. Uh, oh, so this they're willing to nationalize. <laughs> yeah. the authorities I'm, just, were, I'm just surprised he mentioned the East India Company at all, right? Like he does he, not mention it again. Of course. <laughs> but he call, he calls he calls the the East India he calls company rule a weakness implicit in Indian society. <laughs> yeah. Not like a weakness Damn. implicit in British colonial administration. Mm. I absolutely love that effectively the opening of that paragraph is racism is bad, said the loser. He <laughs> <laughs> actually was the real racist. Until yeah. Sleeman took an interest, the authorities were aware that something was happening on India's roads, something criminal and murderous, but had no conception that a plethora of individual incidents were part of a greater malignant whole. <laughs> you know, probably because they weren't. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Aware of the unwillingness in many quarters to open up the vistas of this appalling case, Sleeman wrote an anonymous article and sent it to the Calcutta Literary Gazette. Oh, the so he article was a narc and a writer to a newspaper. No, he was Q. <laughs> uh, oh damn. He was this. Uh, the article detailed the material on the thuggy, which so far had been accumulated, even if it, in its slenderness was ghastly enough. Wait, he many started QAnon, but in India. Yes. Oh, Many Victorians' God. great works were underpinned by having a strong and energetic press willing them on in their endeavors and able to support their works. So that's a little like a uh, hat tip to the Daily Telegraph there saying, yeah. thanks for Brexit. <laughs> um, so 
archaic Moogle provisions meant that prisoners' words could not be used against other prisoners. Sleeman uh, sle- hold yes. on a second. Mm. Uh, uh, t- so, uh, having a, a, a right against, uh, like, hearsay is archaic when it's Moogle, but when it's British, it's part of our, like, uh, our incredible constitution, which has been so widely copied. Well, Alice, this mm. was swept away because central to Sleeman's scheme to deal with the thuggy were thugs who turned informer. Oh, good. Ah, oh, so damn. Basically, love, love, love wear a wire. So basically, it's hard because it kept slipping off them. <laughs> <laughs> archaic human rights law. Uh, and a, a society that develops a human rights law that I then deem as archaic after I like overthrow it, that, that doesn't mean that it wasn't primitive. If anything, it means it was too primitive. Yeah. <laughs> so he basically the situation mm. is if Captain Sleeman catches you and says you're in a murder cult, you can avoid getting executed by saying some other guy was in a murder cult. <laughs> Name <that's>... five friends. <laughs> oh, it's a pyramid scheme. <laughs> yeah. That's how the murder cult got so big. Uh, so, it's just Herbalife, but the here, Indian version. And so and again, here Jacob, <laughs> here's where it comes back round to where he goes to re- recognizing the mm. sensationalism again, but doesn't under doesn't connect the two strands. Thugs were and also very first draft vibes. Thugs were part of a delicious mystery to the Victorians. Love, full stop. Love, love a delicious hold mystery. Hold on. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Thugs were part of a delicious mystery to the Victorians. Full stop. There was nothing the Victorians relished more than a delicious mystery. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Holy shit. Comma. This is like if E.L. James had written Poirot. Comma. <laughs> All the tastier for being revealed a safe distance away. <sighs> no, that's God. not even the worst sentence in this paragraph. <laughs> No. I, I, I helped edit this and I don't believe you. I, I, my brain has purged this memory oh. already. The At- word tastier really hits the well, ear poorly. We, we keep, the, um, we keep the, 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 the recipe metaphor going. Add to the list of ingredients a dash of the cult of Kali. Oh! Hmm. It's just, this is a kid's fuck. This is the essay from the episode of The Simpsons where Lisa has to read an essay in Washington yeah, where the yeah, girl's yeah. like, how do you make America? Take two parts <laughs> yeah, freedom yeah, yeah. and a dash of, of it, stick to yeah. it. It's, it's, like the, it's like fucking somebody watched... Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the worst Indiana Jones movie, like with a gas leak in their house. Listen, the cult of Carly, mm. though, phenomenal name for an all Indian punk band. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. here was a crime, stupendous in scale, incomprehensible in its motivations and form, and best of all, irresistibly easy to tell as a story. Fucking wow. hell. Did, and, you yet, don't, and yet he struggled. <laughs> you, don't, you don't put that together with the fact that this might have been sensationalized. <laughs> Incomprehensible in its motivations and form. I like, yeah, maybe because it's not real. Mm. God, none of these, none of these events seem to be connected at all. How are they connected? <laughs> that, that's just how devious the Indian mob was. Yeah. <laughs> was it none of them had ever met each other or talked yeah. to each other they, before? They concealed all of their crimes as being so, like a series of unconnected <laughs> robberies. Every terror cell was one person. <laughs> so, my, mindful of time, we have one more section left, uh, and this is Pugin. Um, so Pugin was an architect, and we had a paragraph of about Augustus Pugin as an architect, but it was so boring that we had to cut him. 
that's the problem with all of this shit. Some of it is so badly written yeah. that it's just dull. We, we, so, we can basically, we can summarize. Yeah, we're summarizing it. O- Augustus, Augustus Pugin yeah. is a tradcath. Like, he's one of those press-esque to go back accounts that posts pictures of churches and they're like, oh, isn't this great before all of the Muslims got in? Uh, <laughs> e- except mm. he also built buildings, most notably the clock tower that contains Big Ben. Yeah, right. But then also a Damn. bunch of like churches and stately homes that had gothic buttresses, like press-esque, Southwark- press-esque, yeah. press-esque, yes. Yeah, so I think he had, yeah, yeah. um, Southwark Cathedral was one of his, one of the most mediocre and forgettable cathedrals in London. He there. built the world's first Eton Fives court. <laughs> there, done. <laughs> Fuck you, JRM. So, he also wrote a book called Contrast that was supposed to be a blueprint mm. for a new and better society through flying buttresses. And the full title was Contrasts, or A Parallel Between the Noble Edifices of the 14th and 15th Centuries and Similar Buildings of the Present Day, Showing the Present Decay of Taste. Okay, this is some Alan Partridge shit. Well, no, do this you is have... just the 19th century version of a Lady Shapes with Alan Partridge. Well, no, I'm saying is, do we have any guesses as to who the stand-in for Jacob Rees-Mogg in this book is yet? <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 not even lady shapes though. It is the press esque to go back account. It it is like the, the like high Tory account that like posts a, a Photoshop mm. picture of some church in Poland and then like uh, a like a deliberately run down photo of a spa in Streatham. <laughs> and so you have yeah, to see Christ. Augustus Pugin as Jacob Rees Mogg and contrasts as this book. So this is, he has written himself into his biography of eminent Victorians. I'm telling you, Amazing. Winterbottom is going to make a dynamite film out of this. Coogan's going to play Reese Mogg. Mm. So, Contrast was handsomely and richly illustrated, but it was a classic polemic. It focused on a series of contemporary buildings, set them against a medieval equivalent, and supplied illustrations designed to magnify the beauty of and harmony of one and to diminish the beauty of the other. Pugin's comparison of the newly built King's College London with a view of Christ Church Oxford. The one hunches gracelessly between two larger buildings, while the other, its more contemporary Tom Tower edited out, is shown as the picture of grace. Th- this Twitter account mm. still exists. Uh, contrast was above all a denunciation of urban life of the day. It attracted the world of the Regency, that vanity fair of stucco-fronted manners, high taste, and low principles. But that's Jacob Rees-Mogg. That's what Jacob Rees-Mogg yeah. likes, though. Yeah, oh he God. just likes nostalgia as, a, as an idea. Yeah, it doesn't matter what it's nostalgic for. Jacob Rees-Mogg would like anything which, for its time, was nostalgic. Yeah, he, like a book written in like 600 AD that's like, I can't believe that they call, like, they've stopped calling it Constantinople. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he is he is Homer Simpson with the little pennant that just says sports. <laughs> it confront, contrast confronted the Britain that had, by means of its industrial revolution, created the modern world and squalor and misery in monstrous proportions such as the world had never previously seen. It claimed to be a work of rigorous impartiality while simultaneously asserting that no fair mind could find favor in the work of the present century over the Middle Ages. Pugin's conclusion was that true buildings were the ones that emanated from the men who thoroughly imbued with devotion for and faith in the religion for whose worship they were erected. Which is also uh, a horrible sentence. So he a couldn't horrible write piece of writing. So that's a quote from Pugin, mm-hmm. to be fair. Oh, right, okay. Well, the, then he truly Pugin was the also reason of his death. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wait, that's so hang on. Terrible. He writes this guy into his book, clearly as like a stand-in for him, but then also admits that this guy was completely wrong. He was like, oh yeah, this guy who is exactly like me, who was writing a book in the Victorian era, I thought the Victorian era sucked and preferred yeah, he, an era. He, does, he, no. he was just a weird simp for an earlier era mm. because so. he like, wanted to feel good about himself. Anyway, he's me. So here's, mm. here is how this works. Here's how this fits in. Okay. Pugin was also fated to be what would could be called the first eclipsed Victorian, which is a uh, category of thing. Right. Okay. Are we going to define that one? Victorians. Uh, 
Even in his own lifetime, despite the very great architectural and cultural legacy, his people virtually lost sight of his achievement. He was the first victim of backlash, which began long before the Victorian age came its, itself came to an end, against what Lynn Strick... Yeah! <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. He, he got owned by a guy who lived like 200 years after him. Awesome. <laughs> Against what Lytton Strachey's Bloomsbury mm. contemporary Victoria Wolf called the crystal palaces, bassinets, military helmets, memorial wreaths, trousers, whiskers, and wedding cakes of the age. Everyone trousers? I don't like is Lytton. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this hero who was forgotten, even as the revolution he adopted, is me. I'm the, I'm the guy. <laughs> um, and so that, that's the thing. It's also the world's first eclipsed Victorian, the guy, the first person who got cancelled by libs. <laughs> Damn. Um, the world's first owned Victorian. The world's first cancelled. So, uh, the young Pugin was not alone in communing with an imagined past. The first decades of his life in the age of modernity, though they were, also witnessed a rising interest in interpreting and from time to time enacting history. This was the age of romanticism, which reacted sharply to the mechanization and industrialization of at work on all sides in multiple forms. But, so, but, but Jacob for the working class is the mechanization and industrial. He's the be he's the beneficiary of all of this. He's a hedge fund guy. Yeah. Well. Uh, this is, where, this is where he writes himself in the book as farce, because he recognizes that his nostalgia for imagined past is like, he's working to make the world a more mechanized and industrialized place. He's working to demolish all of this. It's just he has to console himself. But I continue. Take the Eglinton Tournament of 1839, in which 100,000 spectators gathered in the pouring rain in Ayrshire to watch enactments of medieval jousts, or Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, a romance Ugh. which depicted a fanciful medieval world and became a bestseller. It was also the era of Young England, a group of youthful Tories at Eton and Cambridge invested in the idea of a medieval feudal golden age. Uh, well, this is, I mean, uh, this is exactly, is this, I mean, I hate to give him any credit here, but is this some creeping self-awareness from Jacob Rees-Mogg? No. No. <laughs> I can tell you that it's not because of, I can tell you that it's not because he, this, yeah, just like the last uh, biography, there's an opportunity for self-awareness. Yeah, sure. That mm. is dutifully avoided. Mm. So, just like every problem can be an opportunity, every opportunity can also be a problem. So he, the, here, this is the last of the quotes I'll read from Jacob Rees-Mogg's book because we're going a bit long and I'm aware you've got to run. The shape he gave to his buildings trans and this is the moral of the Augustus Pugin section. Right. The shape he gave to his buildings transferred to the shape that Britain herself assumed in the national psyche, which is again a meaningful sentence. Yeah. You know, the shape that Britain assumes in the national psyche is quite a bit like uh, Southern did you Cathedral. Just assume my shape. <laughs> well, no, it's it's quite a bit like the Southern Cathedral. Yeah, right. dismal, forgettable. <laughs> mm. Lending his work a potency which none of his contemporaries can possibly match. Pugin what took the language. Pugin took the language of the past and placed it in the service of the present, and in doing so, he created marvels which affect our lives profoundly. If Churchill's famous quip, we uh, shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us, is to be believed. This is we like got there the exposition in, the in a Fifty Shades of Grey book. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's also like, just, just, man, just, you, sentences. Why, why can none of these twats write? That's what offends yeah, me like more than anything else. Expensively educated, so yeah. this is what they come up so with. We're doing um, we're doing metropolitan elitism against Jacob Rees Mogg. <laughs> oh no! A sight of his life and work shows a man who could only ever have been what he was because he had a greater cause than himself.
A noble wow. spirit embiggens the smallest man. Jebediah Rees-Mogg. Jebediah Rees-Mogg. What's amazing Fucking is hell. also that bit where he was like, that this guy is like a titan of our age. He's like shaped the world we live in today. Like, no one's ever heard of this guy. Because of the libs. Uh, <laughs> because, because of, of culture. Uh, because so, of so, Mitch Kumar presenting a horrible yeah. history song. So, th- mm. this is, this he is was like supposed if we're to doing... present the Oscars and they took it away from him. <laughs> If we're doing psychoanalysis, right, this is the fear at the like that lingers in the heart of Jacob Rees-Mogg is that like he is not going to be remembered or will be remembered dismally because the libs will get their way and will like wash away all of his beautiful, <laughs> well-intentioned, mediocre work. Fucking Just, hell. Tra- trash future survives, Jacob Rees-Mogg doesn't. So yeah, uh, so uh, it, that means in 200 years, there will be like, the Jacob Rees-Mogg of his day will write yes. a book about like, <laughs> Eminent, eminent Brexiteers that will just constantly harp on this podcast. (laughs) Anyway, I don't think that Milo would have done something like that. (laughs) (laughs) The trash future set. (laughs) And their comrades from Whitechapel. Mm. All right. uh, So that... That's the first half of this book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh... Good lord. Can, can we arrange for Nish to get like reparations for having to read this? <laughs> uh, mm. Yeah, well, and, and Nish will get 10% of the sales of this book, uh, which is at the moment four pounds. Oh man, that is absolute shit. How do we all feel? Sullied. Yeah. Like. Uh, I feel like I just ate a pizza that was raw. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I just ate, a, not I, even with meat, I'm not feeling sick from pepperoni, just that I've just spent the last hour and 16 minutes just chewing on uncooked <laughs> pizza dough. I, you know I, what I, I, I feel like I feel like Geralt of Rivia when like you drink a potion, I feel like I have high toxicity. Oh, God. This, um, I think this, genuinely, this episode will have made more money than Jacob Rees-Mogg's <laughs> book has in sales. Uh, and in that sense, uh, we are doing upper-class derision of Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> just, to be honest, on book sales, this yeah. podcast is already ahead of his non-existence. <laughs> yeah. More people will listen to this podcast about his oh, book than God. ever bought his book. Certainly, certainly more than listen to the audience book of his book. <laughs> oh, that, that, no, that is, I will not go there. No. I will do a lot for you people. I will not <laughs> listen to that book. almost anything for love. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> I believe it is now time to, to bring this sordid affair to, not a real close, because we will be finishing this book at a later date, <laughs> but <laughs> to a temporary reprieve. Uh, so I want to first say, Nish, thank you so much for doing this to always yourself a again. Pleasure. Always a pleasure. Always a word I'm using incorrectly, uh, <laughs> but it is always an experience. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to thank you all for listening uh, on our Patreon. You're all lovely, and I love and kiss mwah, each and every one of you. Um, uh, do we want to do any plugs before we go, Nish? Do you have anything coming up? I've got nothing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Like Nish's tweets on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Go uh, and watch horrible history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, do I have anything? I've got the shows at uh, Vault Festival and at Leicester Comedy Festival and at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So check out. There'll be a link in the bio. The bio. The link in the description. The ghost <laughs> all of my. Well, I have a brain parasite. I'm sorry. Bing pong. <laughs> Brexit. Ding dong. Um, yeah. Get you click on that, and it'll give you all my tour dates if you want to come see me. Uh, and also, we thank you for listening to this, for coming to our li- our live 
inaugural TF Union debate uh, tonight mm. uh, at the Head and Chickens. However, we're also doing a live show uh, on, the 11th of on the 11th of March. And at that's Voxel going Comedy to be Club. at Voxel Comedy Club. It's not going to be anything fancy. It's going to be a normal live show of this podcast. Mm -hmm. So please do come out to that. Mark in your calendars. Tell your mom. Tell your dad. Tell your uncle. See if he can come. <laughs> uh, and I think with, with that, it's just left for me to say thank you all for listening. Thank you again, Nish, for coming on. And thank you to Ginseng for our theme song. Here we go. You can find it on Spotify. Listen to it early. Listen to it often. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.